Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, where the only thing to fear is fear itself, and sometimes some nasty movies. I am Mark Dottavio. I'm Seth Troyer. And today we are joined by film critic Guy Lodge of The Guardian and Variety to talk two controversial landmarks in queer cinema. Both of these films were released in the span of one to two years in the early 80s, and both pushed boundaries with their unflinching and sometimes very explicit depiction of the lives of gay men. First up is the final and most provocative film, arguably, of legendary German filmmaker Rainer Werner Fassbinder, 1982's Corell, followed by 1980's daringly graphic cult classic Taxi Zumklo, aka Taxi to the Toilet. Hey. Here to help us on our way to that toilet. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with us is Guy Lodge. He is a film columnist for The Observer and chief UK film critic for Variety. He's been published in countless other places, such as Newsweek, The LA Times, Time Out, The Playlist, and Vanity Fair. You can also check out filmoftheweek.co.uk, where he is the joint editor-in-chief. Uh, Guy Thank you so much for joining us at this late London hour. Thank you so much for having me. And I think it feels right to discuss these two movies at a late hour, I think. So, you know, I think I'm on I'm on the right clock here. So you guys have to catch up. For us, it's dinner time. It's all about, <laughs> uh, you know, appetite. Yeah. And if you're not watching the video version right now, I'm actually in a bathroom. <laughs> this works perfectly. But uh, yeah, Guy, thanks so much for joining us. I know that before we get into these films, I know that you know you have a pretty regular gigs out there doing uh, reviews and film columns for Variety and The Guardian. But could you tell us a little bit about Film of the Week? Because that sounds like, is that kind of like a pet project of uh, yours? Yeah, it actually started during the pandemic. Um, my kind of longtime friend and colleague, Catherine Bray, and I... Um, We'd been wanting to kind of do something together and uh, kind of yeah, figure out a project. And it kind of, during the pandemic, it became clear to us that people were kind of struggling to find things to watch or they didn't know kind of what to watch because there's so many choices out there, you know, even um, whether it's just streaming or even kind of when, you know, at that point the cinemas were closed, but since then they've opened, which only kind of makes the choice even more daunting um, and for a lot of people who, you know, only have time to watch, you know, we watch everything. Not everyone has that amount of time. So we decided that we'd have just a very simple kind of weekly recommendation where we pick like one film from all the noise, um, whether it's, you know, something that's in theaters or on a streaming platform or, but a film that we like, that we think other people will like. We write like one quite short review of it, nothing too kind of taxing, keep it kind of light, keep it conversational. Um, and yeah, recommend that to people every week. We send it out via newsletter as well. Um, and yeah, we've we've since then got about kind of 2,000 subscribers. It's um, it, what started out as a kind of little hobby project has, you know, since it grown grown into something bigger than we bigger than we planned and we're we're thrilled with that 
All right. So yeah, make sure you go and check that out if you have not already. That's filmoftheweek.co.uk. I've heard lovely things from people. I, that, that's one of the ones I have definitely heard of. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, we, yeah, we have a lot of fun with it. And Catherine and I have both quite different styles, which I think is why it works very well. She's um, she's a wonderful writer. She's very kind of funny. She's very uh, she kind of shoots from the hip. Uh, I kind of have a slightly kind of different tone, I think, because I'm so so used to kind of writing in, in more of a variety kind of way. Um, so yeah, the, the contrast is what makes it work. So the film this week, at least the first one that we're going to be starting off with, uh, is Corel. Um, but I do want to ask, I guess, a little bit. That's the score directly from the yeah, movie. That's, Thank that's you. From, that, I, I just played that sound clip. I just uh, just to get us in there. It's that operatic, that haunting operatic music <laughs> in this. It's actually pretty awesome, uh, and sets the tone. Yeah, actually, if you turn on the subtitles on the Criterion Channel when you watch Corel, every time that little music cue plays, it says "spiritual drone." Really? Dude, yeah, I love that. that's, <laughs> that's hardcore. That's what a great way to what a great way to describe that. So, uh, but yeah, so this was, I do want to talk a little bit about why you decided to pick this. I know that you mentioned that you were giving a talk about this at the, you said the Melbourne Film Festival? Yes. Yeah. Um, that was, yeah, two weeks ago, actually. Oh, that's um, amazing. Yeah. Went, went all the way to Australia for the Melbourne Film Festival. Um, not just to, uh, not just to show Carell, but, um, they do a project there, uh, called Critics Campus where, um, kind of, experienced critics and international critics come out to mentor kind of young writers and aspiring critics and we do kind of lots of workshops and panels and kind of one-on-one mentoring sessions um and as an additional thing they asked the kind of guest critics if they would all pick a movie that we felt had been either kind of in history either underrated or misunderstood and has since been kind of reevaluated um, to screen as past the festival and and then to have a kind of post-screening discussion of it afterwards. So um, I picked Corel and we uh, screened it to a sold-out house actually at their very big kind of flagship festival theater, which was an amazing experience, especially considering we were up against the um, uh, the quarterfinals of the Women's Soccer World Cup, which Australia was playing in that night. So I kind of thought we would be doomed. And yet uh, people still kind of defied the odds to come, come watch. And we had a great discussion afterwards with uh, Michael Koreski, the wonderful editor of Reverse Shot, um, and Stephen Russell, a great local Australian critic. And yeah, we, I think we we all learned a lot in the process. It's a film that kind of, you learn a lot about it when you kind of see it through other people's eyes as well. And before we dive straight into that, uh, just as background for anybody listening, this was the final film of uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder, who this was the ninth. I had not previously seen this. This ended up being the ninth movie that I saw by him, which for most directors who died at the age of 37 would be a pretty high number of movies. Uh, however, Fassbinder, it, I think between 67 and 82, made over 40 films. Uh, plus TV serials and plays. He was extremely prolific. So I've only scratched the surface. And died young at, on top of it all. It's crazy. In, insanely so, yeah. Uh, I mean, we have no idea what, you know, what what his kind of output would have been if, if he had kind of lived even to the age of 40. It, it blows my mind, you know. 
I'm I'm older than he was now, and you know what what have we all done with our lives? Exactly. And even though you'd think, well, at least he got all of those in, it really does feel like he was almost just getting started with some of the stuff he was doing shortly before his death. And uh, Carell came out after he died. I think maybe the year or the year right after. Yeah. Um, that he died. And, you know, he's, I don't know if there's a bigger name associated with new German cinema than Fastbinder. It, it, usually the era itself tends to get lumped in with exactly, you know, when he stopped making films. And he has such a specific style that draws on, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, Hollywood melodramas, uh, kind of experimental film techniques, social critiques, and of course, queer themes, which is uh, yeah. probably most overtly explored in Corel. It's actually dedicated um, to his, to, I'm going to try to say his name right, El Hedi Ben Salem, who is a star of his film Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, and uh, often on Lover, as far as I understand. Yeah, who's, who's, I believe whose life kind of ended rather tragically as well. Um, and yeah, it's, it was, yeah, kind of a, a personal project for Fassbinder, even though it was, you know, an adaptation of a, um, you know, of, of a Jean Genet story. And Jean Genet, of course, a kind of hugely influential queer uh, French writer and poet and uh, filmmaker as well. Um, so kind of, Lots of, uh, yeah, lots of kind of layers of text and, and influence there. And yet it still feels like one of I kind of Fassbender's most kind of intimate and, and, and revealing works. Yeah, I had to assume, I've, this is actually the only Fassbender I've seen. And I had to assume this is his most overtly queer because uh, I don't know how you get more overtly queer than the name. And you like, stop what you're doing and look up the poster online right now which is the first thing that drew me to this movie years ago. Uh, it is a young man uh, holding a knife in a, in a sort of phallic way. And, you know, as if that's not enough, his back is against a large tower that it looks exactly like a penis. It's not that it looks like a penis. It's a brick penis, <laughs> which is in the actual movie. Yes. It's like the be- very right at, right at the beginning, the boys are on their boat and they're pulling into shore and there's large phallic pillars waiting for them we're going to be saying the word phallic a lot i think of the next hour and penis and cock probably i appreciate the positioning of your microphone by the way it's it's very um that's quite phallic too um <laughs> and yeah it's it's i mean fassbender a lot of his work had had kind of queer um queer themes and queer overtones and you know one of his films fox and his friends was very much about kind of queer relationships but this was um I think the most erotic film he's certainly made kind of in, in that uh, department and kind of a break from a break from his previous work in many ways. This was in a much more kind of stylized heightened register than a lot of what he had made. A lot of his films focused on women, whereas this was very much, um, you know, it's apart from Jean Moreau at the center of it, it it's, it's an entirely kind of, um, it's it's a complete sausage fest, really. So uh, yeah, and a, a kind of atypical work in in a lot of ways, which is interesting because it often gets because it was happened to be his last film. It often gets sort of talked about as like an epitaph for his career or or the summation of his career. Whereas it really could have just been the you know the start of a whole new phase. We'll never know. Yeah, I love how romantically it's all shot. It feels. First and foremost, like a fantasy, 
uh, like a, you know, very much uh, stylized. It feels like a play, like that you're watching. The costumes are gaudy. Like all the sets are kind of just haphazardly put together, but in an elegant sort of way. Like all the lighting is very beautiful. Like for me, that is like what I walk away with is just how beautiful, like the, like the emphasis on the orange and blue lighting. Yeah. Everything is so like hazy and over dramatic and it just flows into the melodramatic uh plot that's going on which is very you know like lovers quarrels backstabbing secrets and all this stuff uh i did find it interesting that uh while it is like a tribute to jean genet's book it it mark was telling me that like basically and i looked it up it, it kind of tears up the book quite a bit which it feels very literate. Like it feels very like a, an adaptation. And I mean, it's like full of narration throughout the whole thing. I was kind of hoping Mark would have done the opening of this episode in the, in the guy's voice, which is just telling you everything that's going <laughs> on about how death is linked to love and everything. But yeah. It kind of sounds like Adam West. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And then there's like yeah. these slides that aren't translated, at least in the Tubi version that I watched which I loved, but uh, which was just very mysterious. They're just not translated. Yeah, the beginning of the film, it says it's a film about John Genet's Corel of Breast, which, again, I haven't read, and I, but I have read that uh, Fassbender called it a fairly uninteresting uh, third-class story about a criminal, I think was the term that he used. That's so transgressive of him. Yeah, I think Fassbender was much less interested in in the story, which, as you said, he's kind of completely chopped up and and rearranged here, and, and just so much more interested in yeah the the atmospherics and the environment and the kind of just the the kind of erotic dynamics at play in in this in this world of kind of you know sailors, uh, yeah, sailors on shore and and the hangers on who revolve around them. Um, it's yeah, and as you say, it's it's this extraordinary feat of. I mean, we use the word world building a lot these days, and this is quite literal world building because I think it's one of the great sets ever constructed uh, for uh, for cinema because it's you know it's the supposedly the port city of Brest, but it's entirely kind of a, a set and a soundstage. Every part of it is artificial, um, and I think it's so beautiful. Every kind of detail whether it's the kind of bar that they all hang out in or the ships that they kind of that they supposedly work on even though you never really see anyone working in this um you know in this film and even you know even the trees are visibly fake and the and as you say all those incredibly kind of phallic pillars that they all kind of lean seductively against it's every part of this world is is sort of a a prop designed to kind of heighten the you know, this this kind of carnal atmosphere of the whole thing. Oh, man, yeah, they'll show up all sweaty and, like, covered in soot. Oh, yeah. But you'll never, like, see them doing any of that work. It is all, like, they're no, already no. In, the, in, the, <laughs> in the midst of break time. It's eternal break time and them, like, leaning against trees, just, oh, woe is me, you know. This is the boat I'd like to work on if I was a sailor. <laughs> oh, me too. So I sent out an application. We'll see what happens, Yeah. Uh, but you're right, even the backdrops of the sky are always clearly painted. And, you know, he has, of course, been influenced uh, pretty vocally by 
uh, directors like Douglas Sirk and American melodramas throughout all of his career. But this definitely amps up even compared to someone like Sirk, the artificiality, the expressionistic lighting, and the color schemes that he likes to work in uh, in all of his movies always tend to be not quite the ones you normally see. There's lots of orange and yellow and... Yeah, this kind of permanent twilight. Yeah, yeah which some, it kind of sometimes reminds me of like those 70s houses that will have weird like kind of yellowish carpet and, oh, and yeah. brown couches and things like that. See, I couldn't find anything like linking him with Kenneth Anger. Like this really like gave me some Kenneth Anger vibes and I wondered if like they'd be... Maybe like best chums or maybe something more. I think you're right. There's a kind of spiritual connection there for sure. Fireworks as a movie kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to really find a a direct analog in a modern director, I think, with him. And again, this movie isn't totally representative of everything that he was doing. He worked in black and white really beautifully in Veronica Voss which is one of my favorites. And But this is definitely the least naturalistic film on every level that I'd ever seen by him. And the way that he shoots his films are just so beautiful outside of the lighting. The way he frames shots is very recognizable to me. That is lots of using mirrors and rearranging bodies in the frame so that a shot will start as its own very carefully blocked composition and then end up as another very a carefully blocked composition, sometimes using just the architecture of the set or um, just the way people are standing in relation to each other. And that stuff is all very much in evidence here as well. And I think sometimes he's even kind of cheekily playing with the aesthetics of pornography as well, or, or certainly as pornography was kind of back then in the early 80s and late 70s. It's, there's lots of that kind of gauzy, soft lighting, particularly during the kind of sex scenes. And um, and I think there is a there is a kind of winkling, uh, there is a kind of wink towards kind of low culture and high culture in the same frame. I, I really love that about it. And especially the performances seem deliberately stilted to me here, which there are times when I was pretty sure I was hearing overdubbing being done, which I'm not sure if that was an intentional choice as far as uh, keeping up this kind of artificial performance style, because I'm pretty sure this is the only movie of his I've seen so far that's in English. I don't know how many of those he did. Even though it was apparently originally released in the US, dubbed into German uh, to, I don't know, to, to amplify its foreignness or whatever. So as you say, I think there, there, are, there are layers of, of um, yeah, kind of linguistic dubbing and whatever else has appeared. But yes, it, it is, you know, in, in its original form, supposed to be in English. And there is a kind of palpable second language quality to that and the writing is is slightly kind of stiff and artificial at points in ways that feel quite deliberate and that extends into the performance style as well well and let's get into what this film is doing on this podcast basically is because this was a very frank in its way and reasonably direct film that in places is kind of dealing with gay hookup culture um but again in a very stylized way the next movie we're going to talk about will give probably give you a much more like accurate picture of what that would actually look like in that time and place uh but they are very frank about certain things in this i 
Gosh, even starting to like describe the plot is daunting for me because <laughs> there's so much going on here. But Corel is this handsome sailor, basically, who has a, a captain who is obsessed with him and he's always recording monologues about him into a tape recorder. And wherever they dock seems to be a, a pretty easy gay hookup place. And I don't know, there's all kinds of stuff. If anyone else wants to take a stab at, we do it better than me. But there's murders that happen in an investigation. Well, and, yeah, Carell uh, murders a man basically because I, it seems as though he's pissed that he's not flirting with him or something. Yes, the one, the one person in the in the dock who isn't flirting with Carell. Yeah, in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, and then manages to basically get another sailor to um no another another laborer to kind of to take the blame for this murder uh, along with a you know along with another murder it's all a a very kind of complicated chain of crimes and and um and punishments or punishments of the wrong people and yeah and and it's all gets kind of very very messy and very there's lots of kind of kind of especially there's lots of kind of sexual bartering as well going on between Carell and the you know the various men who desire him, the kind of owner of the bar where the um, where the kind of sailors all hang out, uh, and who who is married to Jean Moreau, who's sort of the 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 diva kind of chanteurs of this bar as well. And yet, you know, she seems repeatedly perplexed that no man in this entire kind of realm is interested in her. Uh, and you know, it's like poor. Right, even though she's this like faded, like starlit kind of lady. Exactly. She's like the only lady amongst all these gay men. But the whole trick of the movie, it seems like what the movie really thrives on is that tension uh, that maybe is a little bit foreign to us now in a more accepting age, but that tension between like men being around other men who maybe have desires and they can't say it even when it's happening and they still have like there's still a constant fronting even though there's like anal sex is happening they're still like well it's just my ass all right it's not any yes. and i'm not a fairy there's like they'll go back and forth for a long time both of them legitimizing what is going on everybody is very like in very interesting ways, kind of like in their own weird closet. Yeah, there's still a great deal of kind of shame attached to all the sex in this film, which is really interesting because in in another respect, it's incredibly kind of frank and, and candid about sex. And yet whenever kind of Carell has sex with the man, it's always, yeah, as you say, it's always kind of couched in these terms of like, it's, you know, it's just bodily. This doesn't mean anything. Um I'm not really gay. It's just, you know, this is just something we're doing. Um, I find that so interesting because, you know, Fassbender himself was proudly gay, was not, you know, ashamed of it in, in any way, even though he had his own kind of various kind of psychological demons to um, to battle. But uh, it's, yeah, it, it's an interesting kind of pre-AIDS depiction of... Um, of on on the one hand, kind of great sexual liberty, um, but still with this kind of curtain of um, of denial and, and shame around it, and I think that's quite kind of reflective of the period it was made in, and probably of the uh, like when Jean Genet was writing this, uh, like way before that. Uh, I know that he was in World War Two, but was 
dishonorably just discharged for like basically homosexual acts, quote unquote, um, which I'm sure a lot of this comes from that, at least in some way of uh, him, you know, having his affairs with men that probably very much acted like this uh, in some way or another, but probably not speaking in such Shakespearean ways about it all. Yeah. And this isn't that as far as being graphic, I think this is much more frank in the dialogue than in anything you really see. So again, a big contrast with the other film that we're talking about. Um, But probably, I don't know, maybe the most memorable scene in this, or one of the most memorable scenes is this dice game that he plays with the owner of the bar. And apparently he does this with a lot of people where if he went, if they win, then they get to have sex with his wife. And if he wins, then he gets to have sex with them. And then they have sex with his wife. Right. <laughs> and uh, it goes either, it either goes well or poorly for uh, Corel, depending on what you're thinking he wants to happen with that. And I guess that is part of the mystery there, at least for a while, because like you said, everybody wants him and it's a little blurry about who he actually wants, at least for a while. And... Yeah, that's one of the more interesting things about this movie. And I know Fastbinder himself, I believe, had relationships with women as well. So there is kind of this uh, omnisexuality aspect going on to it. Yeah, Fastbinder was just, I think, quite yeah, sexually voracious just in in, in all directions. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, I, I think Carell does kind of, slightly reflect the, the kind of breadth of his kind of sexual interests and, and sexual appetite. Gay sex in, in Carell was always, yeah, is always presented as as kind of a something that's inflicted on on other people as a result of kind of losing a game or losing a bet, even though in this case Carell always deliberately throws the dice game so that he will, you know, quote unquote lose and have to have sex with the barman. Um, it feels like no one ever wins a game against the barman. It's an interesting one. Um, and and yeah, I think it's... And yet there's also just a lot of very genuine desire. And Franco Nero plays the, you know, the captain of um, the ship who is kind of fixated on Carell and des- desires nothing more and consistently kind of protects him and saves his ass. And finally there's... Um, almost a weird kind of happy ending for them both. And yet you, you know, the, the film always um, is a little bit kind of elusive on that point. And that's the aspect that made me think, and I'm sure that this has to, this other movie has to come into people's minds when they watch this, which is uh, Claire Denis' Beautravage, I think is how you say it. Beautravage. Beautravage. And uh, partly because of the kind of superior who is obsessed with the, the younger person. Uh, also, there's a kind this policeman character. I'm not even sure if he's a real policeman or not, but he wears this kind of leather outfit, which is close to <laughs> what that character in uh, Botrevai is wearing at the end. Leather daddy guy. Uh, yeah. Actually, made me think of. It's funny too because originally your first idea was to pair this with cruising, which we just talked about that last week, and the timing is actually pretty great here because first of all that outfit reminded me of some outfits that we see in that movie and that also is tackling this uh, gay hookup culture which would be would have been a great pairing with this although i'm glad it gave us an opportunity to check out uh taxis on clo but yeah what is the i mean were there any more thoughts specific to that as far as that comparison goes because that's definitely a, a movie probably a lot more people have seen 
that, uh, or I don't even know if it was necessarily a deliberate homage, but it feels to me like it would have to be. It's interesting, yeah, because I think, um, I mean, uh, Claire Denis' film was officially based on kind of Herman Melville's Billy Budd, but it was a very kind of loose adaptation of that. And I think, yeah, as you say, it, it incorporated, I think, a wealth of kind of past um, depictions of kind of hyper-masculinity, particularly in the military, and kind of male archetypes. I mean, so I think there is quite a lot of, you know, Jean Genet that leads into um, leads into her film as well. I, I cannot imagine it was accidental because, you know, I, nothing nothing Claire Denis makes is, is by accident. And I think, you know, Beau Travail, which is one of my favourite films as well, is a much more, much more kind of, disciplined and and restrained and kind of contained film than um you know than than Carell is the, the queerness of it is much more kind of beneath the surface and kind of contained glances and gestures and uh but I I I, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think they do kind of speak to each other um and and they both they both kind of have this interest in both in kind of masculine iconography whether it's kind of uniform or or kind of military kind of power kind of playing and 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 just in the kind of in the beauty of the male body and they both actually shoot the male body in quite similar ways kind of just incredibly kind of carefully lit and you know every kind of bead of sweat is sort of you know highlighted like a you know like like it's a sort of renaissance painting in some ways and and yeah i think they would that would be a great double feature together. I'm in all aboard. So I, I do want to talk about the approach to storytelling in here because there is pretty much wall-to-wall narration in this movie. And that was that's what I think stopped me from liking this as much as some of Fast Finder's other movies. It's debatably one of the more unwatchable parts of it. Even, yeah, it's like maybe you're not like a conservative prude dad or something, but like following like even just following all the threads and all the melodrama and stuff like it can be kind of exhausting yeah and all these layers of voiceover as well because it's um there's there's this kind of omniscient narrator and then there's the ship's captain who narrates and then there's another source as well and and you're kind of you're kind of trying to keep all these voices kind of separate in your head but they all kind of wind up kind of combining into this one Kind of, yeah, yeah. This, this weird kind of slightly <laughs> horny voice of God that permeates through the through the whole film, which is such a huge part of this. Is everyone's so horny and yeah. so into the fact that they're horny and everything about themselves that's going through that process? Which is funny because apparently, I don't know how much act of what we're hearing actually comes from the book because it sounds like uh, Fassbender was just throwing. All for all I know, all, most of that stuff was invented or written by him. But it reads, it plays very much like an adaptation to me, which uh, I have pretty strong thoughts about the typical pitfalls about adaptations of literary source material, which is basically that you know a paragraph of, of beautiful prose just, just is not going to translate in a literal way when you reduce it down to the plot of the of whatever you're watching, and. So you can either try to find a visual corollary or you don't. And that that's usually how a lot of adaptations turn out that I don't care for. Or you put that prose in narration in people's mouths constantly. And none of those, neither of those approaches really work great 
for me, mainly because we're just constantly having the characters' motivations described to us and explained. And then sometimes it's diving into the themes. And this movie goes as far as to sometimes just go to a black or white screen and now we're reading it instead of hearing it. And if you watch it on Tubi, you won't even know what it says. Yeah, and just have chunks of text on the screen. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, they are translated on the Criterion channel, and but it's all it's it's a lot of stuff that you've heard throughout. I guess even omniscient narrators need like a bathroom break every once in a while. Like, you just read this part and I'll be right back. <laughs> it was wild. They would follow up voiceover following up a journal entry and now it's right. late. It's amazing. <laughs> and even when characters talk, a lot of times it's, you know, the guy monologuing into his tape recorder or just talking to each other, monologuing to each other about what they're feeling. He's monologuing without opening his mouth too. Sometimes. Right. At one point, it even freeze frames just so that they the the narrator can get his two cents in uh, before they continue on with the scene. Oh, that was wild. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, there was a some deep spiritual longing inside. <laughs> it was so cool. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, and I think like Fassbender had great kind of reverence for Genet's kind of words and for his imagery, and just less interest in his story. So that's why you sometimes have these quite odd interludes where he just kind of decides to focus on the words alone sometimes in the literal form of kind of on-screen text um and the and the storytelling has to kind of completely stall or pause like just to get get that out of his system and and then kind of move on with his own vision a bit more it's um and i think it's yeah it's as you said when he you know he described it as not so much an adaptation as a film about this text um, which is, you know, such a, a strange and kind of fascinating compromise for for another artist to make. Um, but yeah, it, it it's why, as much as I love the film, yeah, those those kind of transitions and connections, it never quite feels like a, a fluid interpretation of his sensibility with Genet's. It's There's always this sort of strange kind of friction between the two. Yeah, because visually and formally, I think this is beyond reproach. It just looks beautiful in every way and it's very compelling on that level and it's it's yeah it's strange that at the same time this is the most boldly stylized of all of his movies that i've seen and yet at the same time then there's something uncinematic to me about how the story is told and it kind of just takes for granted all these character relationships as if describing them uh, to me will be as interesting as actually seeing them, you know, unfold. So I think the issue for me is too much of it, I think, wouldn't have come across at all without that uh, voiceover. So that might just be, you know, a matter of taste that a lot, how much you like this movie will depend on how, how much you get out of that kind of storytelling juxtaposed with the visual elements, which I'm not sure. It definitely helps keep the interest. I'm not sure how much they complement each other. And I always felt at arm's length from the actual story or characters or getting involved in a way that, you know, at the end of Bo Travai, we have this wonderful, one of the best endings ever, I think, that has this moment of transcendence, uh, you know, where the captain or legionnaire or whoever goes out and it's like dancing in a club that's totally unexpected. Yeah, and there's no such kind of catharsis in Corel. It, it kind of leaves you in, in limbo. But then again, I'm also a little bit of a heretic on not liking Bo and Travai as much <laughs> as other people, so... I was going to call you out, yeah. Maybe there's no version of this that would have just appealed uh, to me. They both have a very, you know, portentous, uh, operatic 
feel to them. Yeah. And you're either on you're on board or you're not. See, while I like this movie more than you, I can definitely get on board with what you're saying about that. Because I do think there's only so much I don't know you could do with this kind of story that is so it is soap opera. It's being filmed in this sweeping, like stagey way. I don't really know. Yeah, it, it is just what it is for me, and you kind of just have to behold it, and it might be kind of a taxing experience for most viewers in a certain respect, because after a while, you can only take so much of this like self-absorption, which it is like about that. It is just, it, it's about just like a, a overtaxing of self-absorption and desire and just never fulfilling that appetite and the appetite is never fulfilled. And that's kind of how I feel as a viewer by the end, I, which I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it does make me feel like I did get inside the movie in a certain way and felt what was maybe intended, which is that sort of, it's just supposed to be longing and it is unrequited. Yeah, the film has definitely this kind of distancing quality to it that maybe feels in parts like it overshoots on that front, but it does also kind of yeah, um feel kind of appropriate for this this examination of of kind of fairly cold, unattainable beauty, particularly in the form of Carell himself, who I think uh Brad Davis, the American actor who was at that point kind of most famous for uh, Midnight Express, um, playing the lead in that. He's so beautiful. It's ridiculous. He's so beautiful and he, and he, a very interesting kind of tragic figure as an actor as well. He was kind of openly bisexual. He, um, you know, died of AIDS a few years, I think kind of in the early 90s. Um, he was 91. And, and yeah, his career never really quite kind of took off after Carell, but like what an interesting choice for him to have made because he... He plays him as this, yeah, as as this completely kind of beautiful but strangely kind of compelling cipher. Um, and, and that feels quite deliberate. Yeah, and to me, so, I mean, just my final thoughts on the topic, basically, is I, this is most fascinating to me as a taste of what might have come had Fast Matter survived. And you just, you know, he... He himself and so many of these people in his orbit were these kind of tragic gay or or bi or somehow queer people, whether it's uh, who, the Salem who this is uh, dedicated to, Fassbender himself, or the main actor. And it, it does feel like he was constantly on the cusp of something else. And stylistically, again, I don't necessarily see that many people who I could easily compare to him. I think sensibility-wise, just as far as queer themes there's people like Todd Haynes uh, or uh, Greg Araki, but they don't necessarily look like anything that he did and certainly not like what he did here. So this is a just another fascinating glimpse of like a new frontier that he might have been right on the edge of. Exactly. And I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Todd Haynes, whose you know, early film Poison owes quite a lot to Jean Genet and to Carell as well. And and it does feel like, yeah, there's a there's a sort of bridging of generations that that might have happened there. And and also we'll never know kind of how Fassbender might have Fassbender might have kind of addressed the, you know, the AIDS era and that kind of how how that kind of then, you know, affected this whole new generation of queer filmmakers. It's he he died right at the kind of beginning of of a new kind of uh, a very different kind of political dynamic shift in in queer culture and queer cinema in general so any anything else Seth, before we moved on to 
another time, just a year prior to this. Another time for Cox. Anytime's a good time. I don't know. I I I, I think this is just such a beautiful oddity of a movie, uh, which is always something that I am happy to run into. I I I think it's frustrating, not for me, because I I I don't know. I can get get on its level with its difficulty and its strangeness. There is something about this that I do wish was a little more uh, giving to an audience or let let a more mainstream audience in because it like on paper again if you like throw this poster at somebody like some like gay kid getting into film like this could be like a very exciting prospect but and in like by like 45 minutes in it can start to feel a little like which is part of it it is like this sort of malaise it's trying to emit this malaise of being a bored beautiful angel kind of uh which can get boring for you too um a little bit but it is just so gorgeous and brad is amazing in it i think and i do enjoy that sort of like i don't know that melodramatic back and forth silly acting that goes on in this uh i don't know it's 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 a whopper and a weird one and i like it my my relationship has to it has kind of shifted over the years as well i mean i first saw it like as a teenager when I was kind of, you know, drawn in by the imagery and um, which, you know, in, in so many ways, it's kind of more iconic than the film itself, as you were describing earlier, that poster and just the image of kind of Brad Davis in that coat and that kind of um, that sailor's cap, which was then kind of reappropriated by, you know, Jean-Paul Gaultier and so much of his fashion design and, you know, became this real, um, yeah, this this kind of codified kind of queer image in itself. Um, and, but I think, you know, I was, I was kind of drawn in by all that kind of outward appeal. And then I was kind of perplexed by the, by the film itself, by, you know, by those very distancing qualities that we were just discussing. And then I kind of returned to it a bit later in my twenties. And um, I think had more kind of patience for what it was doing and more, um, yeah, and, and and kind of I think understood the you know the the kind of comedy of it as well because there is this kind of strange kind of deadpan tone of kind of comedy throughout as well. But yeah, it 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 it's one that each time I view it, I think I I, I come at it a little bit differently. And do you? I wasn't able to find too much about how this was received at the time. Was it that controversial? Because I it, I read that it did. S- it actually did pretty well, at least in Paris when it premiered, and that maybe this was more of a, a gateway rather than something that was off-putting to, to people, it's at least as far as the subject matter goes. Well, Paris would be down. I don't know about anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Trust the French. But um, but yeah, it was not kind of overly um, enthusiastically kind of received, particularly in the States. I mean, you can actually read um, Vincent Canby uh, wrote a really damning review for the New York Times at the time, which I think was quite representative of how a lot of the kind of straight male critical fraternity viewed the film, which was a sort of grudging admiration for its aesthetic kind of accomplishments, but slightly just baffled by its by its kind of general fragmented, disconnected horniness. <laughs> I love that. And I think there's a phrase in his review that I think is very telling, um, where he refers to kind of Fassbender's aggressively uncompromising homosexuality and i think it's always very interesting when queerness is always framed as aggressive that way it's it's <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> there's a as if there's this kind of just threat to the very you know the very existence of of sexuality. If only you could compromise. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, give us all a break. Well, I'd be very curious to see what how he would think about this next movie we're going to talk about, which is 1981's Taxi Zum Klo, or Taxi to the Toilet. It's a whole lot less my own private Idaho, I gotta say. It's a whole lot less. Yes, also a German film, but came out just the year before, shot on location in West Berlin, uh, with extras starring as themselves. I think most of them just use their same real names as the character names in it. And this is very much a time capsule of this pre-AIDS moment uh, in a much more realistic way uh, than Corel is. But it all comes from this guy I had never heard of named Frank Riplo, who is the star, writer, and director of this film. And as far as I know, didn't he did follow it up with a sequel like six or seven years later. Yeah, which I've never seen. And it didn't really kind of, I think never really took off and and nothing else he made ever really kind of made much of a dent either um he just had this this one kind of landmark which is such a shame because it 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 fucking rules i think it is really awesome i don't know that's my spoiler no it's so great <laughs> and i mean everything about Corel that is um you know that is heightened and stylized and and um, withholding and and kind of at a remove is here just immediate and and real and every day and uh and and it it it's kind of a i think a celebration in many ways of everyday queer life that you know many people in were living but was never really presented on screen that way absolutely and by the way i learned that he has a very small role in Corel. yes which was why I was quite happy to pair the two. Yeah, he's one of the kind of legionnaires in Corel. Yeah, he's just credited as drunken legionnaire, but I didn't. <laughs> I Well, I watched this one afterwards, so I didn't see him myself, but I imagine he would have fit in. I think there might be a slightly different facial hair situation between the two. Mm-hmm. But he has a kind of, yeah, splendid beard in, in taxis and clothes. Yes, lots of splendid facial hair in this movie. Lots of mustaches. It was like, so I don't get to pee on Brad? I don't get to pee on Brad? <laughs> I thought that's why I showed up. So yeah, I think this was, well, this was revolutionary on two different fronts. One is just how matter-of-factly it treats this guy's life. It's not, it doesn't sugarcoat things, but it's also not alarmist in any way about uh, the way his life goes. But also, even if this was, about a straight man, this is a very explicit movie that there's all kinds of what I'm sure were unsimulated sex scenes in it, lots of graphic nudity. Uh, a lot of parts reminded me of the um, like 70s golden age of porn movies, which we did an episode on, uh, that were, you know, we'll just throw in, you know, extremely explicit nudity and sex in there. And sometimes it's a little bit. Uh, I wouldn't say it plays like porns. A lot of times it's very just casual and direct. There are some scenes that seem like, you know, they're they're playful in that in that way where, that I wouldn't necessarily call gratuitous, but it's not like it's trying to be unerotic or anything uh, about it. No, it's just a big part of this guy's life at this point. Um, like this is, and it's important for us to like, really get in there and like if we're really going to spend time in this guy's head and really feel like we're 
a part of his experience. Like that's a big part of his experience, not just like the fact that he has a lot of sex, but we need to go in there and like see what's going on and maybe why this is so exciting or what is he up to, you know? I think, uh, yeah, it kind of does it a discredit to like lump it in with porn. I do think if it like came out now, the comparison would never happen. Like if some, if these like similar scenes were in a movie now, it would just still be seen as like festival gay art movie, you know? Well, just don't let any Gen Z people uh, <laughs> see it because will, there will be a Twitter discourse for months. Yeah, all the people who say, you know, sex scenes don't move the story forward. I mean, it. I think in this case, it's more the story moving the sex scenes forward because <laughs> I think if you took the sex scenes out of this movie, you wouldn't have much movie left. Um, sure. But yeah, it, it, I think it aims to kind of demystify gay sex in... Um, in, in a very kind of uh, frank and forthright, um, but not particularly kind of show-offy way. Um, and it's the kind of casual nudity of it all is is a big part of that. I mean, it's so interesting still to this day how kind of male full frontal nudity is still this kind of taboo that films kind of do almost anything to kind of skirt around. And here, you know, there are just so many dicks just kind of hanging out. We kind of see them in action, out of action, just, uh, and there's there kind of so many of them that you do kind of eventually get desensitized to it, which is sort of the point. It's like, it's no longer like, oh, wow, look at that. It's more like, well, yeah, this is just, this is just his life and this is how he lives. And there's nothing particularly kind of special or outrageous about this to, to him. This is, um, yeah, this is just sort of normal everyday pleasure. Uh, and, and I love how it does that. And I think, um, I mean, I, I think from the very kind of first shot of the film where you kind of catch him kind of lying naked in bed um, and it's kind of shot we've seen before of like just it's kind of from the back and there's his ass and then, you know, you just see like a little bit of ball sack kind of below that, which is something you would never see in a similarly framed shot in another movie. There would always be a kind of way to avoid that. And then, you know, and then kind of a few minutes later, he's just like, on the toilet and you you get all the kind of sound effects that go with that and it's it's kind of gross but it's also just very normal as well um and and i love i love how kind of yeah completely kind of unashamed and 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 just kind of accepting the film is of kind of all manner of bodily functions whether it's whether it's sex or otherwise yeah and it's playful about it too uh, I, it's really interesting the way this movie starts out is almost farcical where he gets locked out of his apartment naked and he ends up climbing nude across like the balconies to get back inside. Like this is going to end up being a the music that's playing sounds like the opening of full house. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> and so I was kind of wondering, you know, what is the tone this movie is going to hit? But afterwards then he shows up with his classroom because he's a teacher and these are really young kids and he comes in and then starts he does this pantomime for them about what happened to him this morning and asks them to figure out what story he's telling. And he uses that as a segue into a lesson and them reading their own assignments about unlucky situations. And that was when I realized like, oh, this is something special. Like this is, this is lovely, this rapport that he has with the kids. And the movie never makes any big thing about it, about any kind of point. There's not some big conflict that comes up with him at the school this is just part of his life. Right. You keep waiting for the principal to barge in, especially at a certain point where he, you know, like later on, he like, it, that's the constant 
problem is him balancing like his quote unquote normal life with his nightlife, right? And his sexual adventures and things like that. And he eventually at one point even comes in and drag and stuff. And you're just like waiting for the principal to come in and start the next act where like he loses everything and he's fired and all the children are crying and like, no, it never happens. There's never like some kid complains or something. It's handled very beautifully and he's like immediately charming uh, uh, and it kind of lasts the whole movie. He's and, and, and in a very like, I don't know. Yeah, it seems as though we are getting at least in that first scene that Mark talked about with the miming and everything that like at least a little bit of a window into who this guy actually is um, as, as the director, like who he actually is, um, which yeah, it's kind of surprising how fast it works. Yeah, and one of the reasons I kind of wanted to talk about this film is because I think it's actually quite a, quite a relevant and quite topical film now in this kind of age of renewed kind of homophobia. If you look at, you know, things like the don't say gay bill and the kind of paranoia around, um, yeah, around kind of queer teaching in schools and whatever, it sort of feels like we've come, you know, or rather reverted all the way back to, you know, when when those were kind of points of cultural panic. Um, and, and the way this film kind of addresses that and, uh, again, kind of takes all that completely in stride and doesn't see any kind of controversy in it or what it's, it's all just kind of different parts of life kind of intersecting in in fairly kind of casual and, and permeable and, and normal ways. Um, and, and I think... If if this film was released now, I think there would still be a, you know, certain people would still be up in arms about it. Yeah, and the whole nature of the movie is it's really this freewheeling, mostly plotless uh, slice of life film that's not trying to make any big points really in either direction. It's just the actual casualness of it that feels so bracing even to this day that everything is fine. But it's not like it, acts like he doesn't have any conflicts because this is a very pre-AIDS movie where there's all kinds of casual sex happening everywhere. And even at the point where he ends up in the hospital with some kind of STD uh, for a long time, it seems like, it's still like just another thing that happens. And it, it almost becomes more about an argument with his partner about not getting the right health insurance and him still sneaking out of the hospital to seek out this rendezvous. And uh, yeah, you could look at this. There's something universal about how this is, even though it's very specific about his life as a gay male, it's to him, this is more about relationships and particularly struggling with monogamy, which almost anybody could relate to. Yeah. And it's still very much, you know, the from, you know, from then until now and way before as well, that's always been the sort of the kind of quandary of of kind of gay men in relationships is when the kind of the kind of need for partnership versus the need for kind of sexual sexual variety and sexual discovery and you know uh the you know the protagonist frank in this film who is very much based on the director himself and played by the director too forms a kind of comfortable relationship with uh you know with burns his wonderfully kind of mustached boyfriend it was like george kuchar yes beautiful gorgeous george kuchar <laughs> and and they have you know they have a very kind of 
close relationship, but then the kind of the sexual spark of it dies out. And while Burns doesn't have that much appetite in that way, Frank really does and needs to kind of you know be with other people and and kind of yeah explore other kind of avenues. And this becomes a kind of point of conflict in in their relationship. And and you know I still know so many people who you know go through that exact. Um, you know that exact kind of transition in their relationship and it's, it's kind of intensely relatable and I think not necessarily just for queer audiences even I think it uh, the way it kind of treats a, a, I think a gay relationship in much the same sort of sympathetic way that many kind of you know films about straight marriage would as well I think that was quite groundbreaking for the time we hadn't really seen a film about sort of just gay couples experiencing kind of relationship trouble in this very um in this very normal and sympathetic and everyday way. I think it is very universal because it is it, it hit me like I mean he's just at that we can see it he's just at that age he's at that point in his life where he's trying to figure out like in various ways like do I dig in here am I going to like is this is this what I'm going to be doing? Is this the person I'm going to be with? Is this the life I'm going to now have for until I'm an old man? Or am I going to like shake it up another time while I still have time? Uh, it's really is like a wonderful exercise and a good lesson for people trying to do like autobiography, I would imagine. And I don't even know like what lessons to like really even pinpoint because it seems so effortless in the way that it doesn't feel like an ego trip. Um, and I don't think it's out of like, it's not like he's embarrassing himself or like lampooning himself. He still like makes himself very charming and makes it makes his whole plight very relatable. Uh, like the whole like, oh, my God, the whole driving around at night, just listing off your cares and and worries is like something. No, like everyone does that. There's no way you're not a person doing that right now. Um, but yeah, somehow it doesn't feel self-important uh, and it never like and, and it seems to uh, recall like the films of like Mike Lee or something. I think maybe that plays into it as I wouldn't call it plotless. and I wouldn't call Mike Lee plotless either because there is such a specific atmosphere and thrust to those. But there is like this whole um, it's more of a refreshing approach that like the scene isn't suddenly announcing itself as oh, this is one of those rising action scenes, isn't it? Oh, this is one of those falling action scenes, isn't it? Well, you could probably categorize it as that. Like, there is something here that is, yeah, it's not, it's just giving a life and giving a story rather than, I don't know, like uh, uh, some, something that is adhering to some design is to get a reaction out of you. Yeah, I think Mike Lee is such a good comparison because he's one of those filmmakers who sort of understands that just, ordinary everyday life is full of incidents i mean every day we live the little kind of you know little crises that we kind of manage and and work through and and those are kind of you know dramatically interesting when you kind of you know zoom in on them close up and and i think riplo um you know gets that as well and 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 as you say uh yeah the film is full of um you know full of quite significant consequential things that happen the film just doesn't build its narrative around a few of them and and 
you know, it doesn't have these sort of huge peaks and valleys. It's just it's just this kind of flow of 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 events and 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 instance that kind of that add up to a kind of bigger picture of of, of a life. I mean, as you were saying earlier, when he um, you know when he goes to hospital with an STD, and I think in another film that would sort of be treated as a big dramatic pivot or a kind of point of realization and. And no, it's just here. It's just another thing that leads on to the next thing, and and that's really, for the most part, how our lives work. You know, we, you know, we think we might kind of, you know, change after a certain thing that happens, and then we revert to old habits. And and I think this film kind of follows that pattern beautifully. It almost reflects Carell in this sense of wondering throughout, what if this guy had gone on to make more movies. And I'm not sure what the reason is that he didn't because I believe he at least lived into the early 2000s. And so I'm not sure what the reason is that he didn't pick up a film career after this, but it does seem like an early promising, you know, work of something that might've gotten even better as he went. Cause you know, there is a, there is a, a, a kind of ramshackle quality to a lot of this. Obviously it's very low budget and, uh, but occasionally we do get a nice shot, like the boyfriend watching him having sex, yeah. like unexpectedly through a broken uh, window or something. And s- sometimes there's some uh, clever intercutting. The vintage porn. Yeah. There's a lot of intercutting here that I wasn't totally sure why. It was more like, why are we going back and forth between the boyfriend petting a lamb and him giving a lesson in drag or... This him having a like a sex pissing into some guy's mouth while very unsimulated, by the way. Make sure that if you're gonna do it, make sure that you uh make it clear that this is not fake, uh, with some sort of conversation with a lady. And then at the other time, there's a really curious scene that I want to get everybody's take on too, which it seems to be the most purposeful instance of this, where we have the boyfriend and the Wally, whoever this friend character is supposed to be, watching like an instructional or educational film that's basically warning against uh, gay male predators. Like this guy is molesting a young boy. Which was real. It was a real film, right? A a real instructional film, right. And that's being intercut with Frank actually like tutoring a young boy. And so at, at first the I, I think that the obvious intent there must be, okay, look at this is the fear-mongering version and this is him actually just connecting with the kid. But what's happening there is like the kid is like flirting with him though, which is like a reverse of what's going on in the informational film where the like man is flirting with the boy uncomfortably. In his scenes, like, we intercut to him tutoring a boy who is flirting with him and he's uncomfortable about it. Yeah. Which I guess is I, I I like to think is just comedic. I don't know if there's any like I don't know what the possible undercurrent could be, but it is funny. I think it's kind of a clumsy joke to cut from the the man just starting to make advances on the boy to the boy jumping into Frank's lap and going, <laughs> "Let's play horsey." And uh, funny. So I think he might might he might have kind of bungled it. <laughs> In the in execution, although I assume that has to be his good choice of words. I assume that has to be the intent, at least, though, is to take the piss out of the instructional film, right? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's kind of drawing attention also to the kind of moral panic that some people would have had around kind of gay men teaching children, because at that time, and often still in many circles, there's this sort of 
ex extremely um, kind of irresponsible and unfair kind of linking of homosexuality with pedophilia as if they're sort of somehow inextricably related. Whoever they want to demonize, that's the first tactic that they take. <laughs> and and I think the incorporation of that kind of archival film, which is so interesting because the film has these little kind of inserts of archival material throughout, and then it kind of culminates in this much longer uh, piece. I think, yeah, it, it is kind of intended to kind of undermine this quite sort of outdated notion and 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 the yeah and and the film itself is so kind of so quaint and so dated and and in contrast to the to the kind of very fresh modernity of of you know taxis on clo itself and i think you know that it it's so we've already seen so many scenes of kind of frank in class with the children and he's so great with them and he's so kind of gentle and and kind of treats them very much kind of as equals and he's obviously a really kind of gifted teacher and even then when he's kind of tutoring this other boy he's kind of genuinely kind of dedicated to his job in this sense and he wants to you know he wants to help and 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 i think the yeah it's it's the, the sort of contrast which as you say is a little bit kind of you know heavily underlined and a little bit kind of clunky in some ways but i think it does make quite a yeah quite a strong yeah, moral point about um, yeah uh, 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 about a I think then quite a quite a prevalent prejudice that many people had um, and 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 still do. I mean, it's interesting. There's a British film that was made about two years before called Nighthawks, also about uh, very much in a realist mode about a a gay man in London who works as a teacher in this in this case kind of in a high school um, and who at one point has a uh, his kind of sexuality is is discovered by one of the boys in his um, in his school. I think they kind of see him out in the town, or I can't remember what it is, and and so he turns it into a kind of lesson where they kind of just ask him questions, and he answers them kind of very frankly to kind of try and kind of defuse the situation and and defuse their prejudice as well. Um, and this kind of ha I think tries to make the same point in a much more kind of yeah, light and comic way. Well, just outside of that one scene that juxtaposes that, you know, the instructional video, I like how it doesn't make, it doesn't strain to make that point and doesn't make the movie about his persecution. And that was just very refreshing, especially when you get to that scene where he shows up to class in drag unwisely after a night of partying. But it's just, it's handled with candor. The kids are giggling about it and he's okay with that. You know, them thinking it's funny that this guy with a beard is dressed like a lady. And, uh, he just uses it to launch into a lesson and it doesn't become a big thing either moralistically or as uh, you know making any kind of message either way out yeah even if you feel that there's a message being pushed it is just i mean it's fair for him to push something because i mean there, there is such a frustrating aspect to the fact that if you think about it that it is so absurd that this person needs that this group of people there's many people like him that are teachers in this time like that he's in or people that are like in all walks of life that deal with children that they would feel the need to go out of their way to make us make various scenes and make make various gestures as to like inform the general public that they are not pedophiles which is just like you know, only speaks to the problem in the society that they're in, the un absolute unfairness 
the yeah, it it only speaks to that, and it's it's wild. Yeah, it's so sad, uh, but like wonderful that he can do it with such grace. And, and the film is, I, I think, so perceptive on the kind of tacit and sort of implied kind of shaming that gay men kind of face in in everyday con you know in everyday con contexts um there's a great scene where you know he goes for uh you know a medical kind of checkup because he thinks he has an std and they um you know they basically do a kind of anal probe and uh and you know the doctor kind of says well this would you know happen to someone who has sort of anal intercourse um and kind of looks at uh at Frank in this incredibly kind of judgmental kind of leading way. Um, and, and the film doesn't really, doesn't build to a confrontation because as we've discussed before, it's not that kind of film. It's, it's just this, yeah, just another thing that Frank has to kind of take in stride. And, and yeah, it's, it's just another kind of piece of the everyday life of a kind of gay man in that era of, of, you know Germany, and I think it it handles those little, yeah, those little kind of microaggressions so well. Yeah, I think it's details like that that do make this movie greater than the sum of its parts. That it's giving you this window in where maybe not every single uh, you know scene or decision is a highlight or a memorable, but the cumulative result of it is something that's invaluable and very charming and playful. And so if the uh, that's Maybe the the best thing about it is that kind of modesty uh, to its aims, which might also be a little bit of what kept me from full out loving it in that, you know, it does seem to just kind of stop at the end instead of really end in a particular way. But it's like, a, like I said, a time capsule, an artifact, and it has all of these great little details and glimpses um, of a filmmaker who might have been. Uh, you know, there's a very funny, just little aside moment where the boyfriend is talking to a travel agent and is like sneaking a handful of candy out of a jar and the movie just like becomes for a little bit about him stealing all this candy and uh, that's the kind of texture that yeah i appreciate in something like this and also we found that there is a, a video on youtube of siskel and ebert reviewing this on their television show oh really and they both really liked it too well, so good for them uh, you could yeah. see that yeah, and they they hardly even seem to comment on you know the explicitness of it, and they just seem to really appreciate the you know it as this little gem and and the casualness of its treatment of everything. So good on them, and look that up. Yeah, it's very interesting. Makes sense given that Ebert was quite a horn dog himself, but I'm glad he was kind of an equal opportunity horn dog. Value the dolls mm -hmm. because I mean the one I think also the great thing about Taxi Zoom Clothes it it just takes kind of great joy in sex as well i mean there are these kind of you know various explicit sex scenes and the yeah god forbid yeah and they're, they're presented in this mostly quite exhilarated kind of celebratory way but it's not highly kind of aestheticized or eroticized it's you know it's often the way real life sex is it's often quite kind of clumsy and there's you know and there's grunting and they're kind of limbs getting in the way everywhere and it's um and you know it's it's you know, usually quite sort of flatly lit the way, you know, most most of us don't get to have, you know, sex under kind of Corel standards of lighting. Oh, um, and and it, it presents us all in this very kind of unglamorous kind of, yeah, real world way that's still extremely hot. Uh, 
kind of for that realism. And, and I love that about it. So I want to give everyone a chance to make any final points or anything that we haven't gotten to as far as this. It sounded like we all really liked it. And I'm really glad that in a way we ended up have already doing cruising last week. So it gave us a chance to become aware of this film because it's just hard to find. If this sounds interesting to anybody, I would probably recommend illicit means to go out and find it. There might be some DVDs out there or something, but this is really ripe for a uh, restoration and oh get it out God. there on the criterion yeah. channel and put it along in the same, you know, series that Corell is in. And it's very likable and approachable film. And especially it's just, you can't take it outside of the context, which is in, which is what makes it still so refreshing to see. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's kind of interesting to discuss it the week after you were talking about cruising because it's, it's kind of the anti-cruising in many ways because it kind of depicts cruising culture. Um, but where, you know, Friedkin's films, Friedkin's film presents it in this, you know, it sort of amplifies the, you know, the danger and darkness and, and risk of cruising. And here it's the kind of communal rewards of it. There's there's a real kind of sense of, I think, community in the kind of Berlin kind of queer culture that it depicts. And, and it's not presented as, you know, as dark or dangerous. It's just, it's just everyday guys getting off in, in a way that makes them happy. Yeah, I wish uh, Al Pacino would have just worn that yellow bandana in his back seat of his pants and gotten pissed on you know for us all to see uh i do think you say that about everybody i really do i i I could liven up any movie uh but uh i really do think it could have paired well with cruising but at the same time this one pairs well with corel for me in that both of these feel like i mean i can't i i like being my age i can't really fathom what it must have been like to see these movies uh, as a queer person, like when they came out, like it must have been like so shocking in a certain way, uh, in a delightful way. And they, they still are. They feel like they're from this alternate history where like Carell feels like it comes from like this alternate gay history where Hollywood was gay and there were lavish sets, and these are this is the kind of shit your mom watched, or like Gone with the Wind or something. And then this feels like a yeah, like like an alternate '80s where we were allowed to have explicit gay sex in movies, and it was especially the way that both of the movies are treated, like the both of the movies treat their subject matter in that they they don't highlight it in this crazy like well can you believe what you're seeing kind of way it it really does feel like it comes from another place yeah and i think if you know if taxis on clo were released today like jaws would still kind of drop over the yeah if the sheer kind of frankness of it you can't even show a boobs in oppenheimer without people <laughs> freaking the hell exactly. out these Just, days oh my god can you believe it can you the most boring it? sex scene i've ever <laughs> seen in my life <laughs> similar to cruising like the feature for this like movie in particular is like the window into the location that they're in because like there is such a like lush history of berlin in the 70s and 80s that you know those who weren't there like i'm always wondering about it like david bowie's berlin right like magical like mysterious place of drugs and sex and everything and you do get kind of a window into what it's like to just like live there which like is kind of great because it's a window into how like well you know i do those things but i also have to work and i also drive around aimlessly and 
worry about my life and stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of love that aspect of it. Yeah, which is very much kind of what Berlin is like as a city. It's like there's this kind of undercurrent of you know, slight kind of decadence to it, and yet also kind of people just getting on with things and living their lives. And um, I think I think it's a great Valentine to Berlin that way. Well, Guy, thank you so much for bringing these movies to our attention. Yeah, for real. I don't know when I would have ever found this thing. Like, I don't know why. It seems strangely hidden. It, it's kind of bizarre to me. Yeah, I was looking for kind of seeing kind of what streaming platforms it was on kind of here in the UK. And there's nothing as well. It's it, Yeah, it, it really is. I, I think it got like a re-release in the UK about 15 years ago or so. And, and it's it's ripe for another. I think. Well, maybe the next time you get to pick a movie for a film festival, that will spur somebody <laughs> to go get that out. But uh, yeah, these are not movies to be afraid of, even though they're on this podcast. Uh, they're controversial at the time, but maybe don't watch the last one, like, I don't know, with your mom or something. <laughs> but that's, unless you, maybe you got really cool. Oh, mom, she but, deserves you know, it. She's got it know. coming. Yeah, <laughs> she's good. So, uh, but yeah, this was a blast. Thank you so much. And is there anything else, uh guy that you want to you know plug or bring anyone's attention to you have coming up this uh let's see this will probably be coming out of uh, two weeks from tomorrow as far as the date of recording i'll be i'll be at the venice film festival at, at that point so yeah uh please yeah subscribe to film of the week that's that's all i've got to say we'll be doing venice reviews as well um and and yeah and and read me at you know, Variety and The Guardian uh, can always be found there. So. All right. Do you have any, like, mo most anticipated movie from Venice? I was going to ask. I really can't wait for the new Yorgos Lanthimos. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. It looks really warped and kinky, and that's exactly where I like him most. Um, new Pablo Lorraine looks fantastic. Uh, I think it's going to be a great year. The, that lineup is fire this year. All right. Yeah, Lor Yorgos Lanthimos had his own episode on this show, too. So we'll see how uh, unwatchable that <laughs> the new one turns out to be. But yeah, very much looking forward to that. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, guys. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Taxi! In the Navy, yes, you can sail the seven seas. In the Navy, yes, you can put your mind at ease. Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening.